everybody. Welcome to Starting with Scripture. This sermon is entitled, Call on the Name of the Lord. It will include teaching from the biblical text as well as uh, teaching about proper interpretation. The expression, call on the name of the Lord, is found many places in the Bible. Perhaps the most often cited and quoted part of the Bible that contains the expression, call on the name of the Lord, is found in the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans 10, 9-13 reads, Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one confesses with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. From the larger passage that I just read, and that's, uh, again, that passage I just read is Romans 10, 9-13. From that larger passage, Romans 10, 9, and 10 is usually quoted rather than the whole passage. Sometimes it's the whole passage, but oftentimes it's just Romans 10, 9, and 10. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 are then used to support a popular doctrine without regard to the context of the verses. And I'll get to that doctrine later. Our modern church often has a habit of taking a verse or two from here or there and making doctrines. This practice is called proof texting. This practice is both historically new and a poor interpretive practice. The New Testament didn't have numbered chapter divisions and verse divisions for more than a thousand years after it was written. About four or five hundred years ago, uh, the Enlightenment began and people started to think in scientific terms and mathematical terms. So when you combine the chapter and verse divisions, so you've got the numbered chapters and the numbered verses, with the scientific and mathematical thinking from the Enlightenment that started about four or five hundred years ago, we get the kind of formulaic doctrine that we have in the church today. Sometimes Bible interpretation these days is almost like a, uh, a mathematical equation or formula. At times it's though uh, some Christians say that verse A plus verse B equals doctrine C. It absolutely is not supposed to be that way. The original readers of the Bible and other ancient readers of the Bible 
did not read and interpret scripture this way because they neither had chapter and verse numbers nor did they have the mathematical scientific formulaic thinking that we have inherited from the Enlightenment. Today we think in terms of book, chapter, and verse, while the ancients thought in terms of multiple paragraphs and entire books within the Bible when they were considering Scripture. The book, chapter, and verse thinking that is all too common today in the church is often called proof texting, and as I said before, it is a poor interpretive practice. Let me now go back to the original text and draw out its meaning now that we've had a, an interpretive lesson. I will again read Romans 10, uh, verses 9 to 13. That's Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. And they read, Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Much of what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 9-13 is rooted in Old Testament scripture. Verse 11, for example, is rooted in Isaiah 28:16. Isaiah 28:16 reads, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Paul is referring to believing in the foundation and cornerstone mentioned in Isaiah 28:16. The foundation and cornerstone mentioned in Isaiah 28:16 is Christ himself. Verse 13 of Romans comes from a passage found in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32. And I'll be reading from that. That's Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned in darkness and the blood and the moon into blood. 
before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Romans 10.13 quotes part of Joel 2.32. That's Joel chapter 2, verse 32. They both share the wording that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Likewise, Romans 10.11 paraphrases part of Isaiah 28.16. There's another interpretive lesson here, and that is in the, in the New Testament, a single Old Testament verse is often quoted or paraphrased for the purpose of referring to a larger passage. Romans 10.11 refers to all of Isaiah 28.16. Romans 10.13 refers to Joel 2 verses 28 to 32. I'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. The passage in Joel 2 to which Romans 10, 13 refers is fully quoted in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verse, uh, verses 17 to 21, quotes Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. In Acts 2, verses 17 to 21, the Apostle Peter quotes Joel 2, 28-32 for the purpose of explaining to the crowd the reason for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and also to tell them that salvation has come. Most of Joel 2, um, and that is Joel 2 well beyond the uh, 2, 28-32 that's been quoted here previously by myself, and is also quoted uh, in Acts 2. Most of Joel 2, the vast majority of Joel 2, is about repentance followed by healing and salvation of the land. So those themes, repentance followed by healing and salvation of the land. So Joel 2, 28-32 is a predictive prophecy pointing to the time of Christ. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter uses Joel 2 and other Old Testament passages to prove and preach that Jesus is the Christ and is a fulfillment of repentance and healing and salvation as predicted in uh, Joel 2 and uh, fulfillment of other predictions in other Old Testament passages. Many Jews present in Jerusalem were convinced of the truth of Peter's preaching and asked the apostles what to do. Peter responded to them in Acts 2.38, which reads, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel 2, which contains the sentence, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Later in Acts 2, Peter tells them to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
calling on the name of the Lord and being baptized into Christ are linked together in Peter's own words. Now I realize there's a good chance that some of you hearing this podcast episode aren't going to believe that because you've been taught something else. You're going to think I'm making it up or you're going to think that I'm uh, um, seeing something that isn't really in the text. So for those of you in in, uh, that situation or otherwise, there is more evidence of calling on the name of the Lord being linked to baptism, and that evidence is found in Acts 22.16. In Acts 22.16, Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I'll read that again. And now why are you waiting? Acts 22.16 Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Doing what? Calling on the name of the Lord. You see, in Acts 2, in Peter's sermon, it's heavily implied that being baptized is is, uh, linked or part of calling on the name of the Lord. In Acts 22.16, it is explicitly stated without doubt. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In the New Testament times in which we live, calling on the name of the Lord includes being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, wrote Romans 10, 9-13. He's the one who was told to be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins or remission of sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he knew the significance of calling on the name of the Lord. Many churches today teach that you can be saved by saying some sort of sinner's prayer, and many of them use Romans 10, 9-13 as their proof text for the sinner's prayer. This teaching is error. There is no sinner's prayer in the New Testament. There are no commands to do it or examples of it. And by no means does Romans 10, 9 to 13 or Romans 10, 9 and 10 prove or authorize that there's a sinner's prayer. Ephesians 4, 5 tells us that there's one Lord, one faith and one baptism. There isn't, therefore, a baptism that calls on the name of the Lord and one that doesn't. There isn't a baptism that is for salvation and one that isn't. New Testament baptism is for salvation and is calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord isn't saying, Hey, Jesus, or saying some prayer. It isn't even necessarily saying anything at all. Calling on the name of the Lord is trusting in the power of his name for salvation, trusting in his renown, believing what he says. It's much uh, deeper and broader than simply saying, hey, Jesus, or saying some prayer. It's much more than that. Those who teach and preach the sinner's prayer often call the practice of baptism for forgiveness of sins a work. They invoke Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in their argument, or they turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and try to support their argument. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 read, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Teachers of the sinner's prayer and other opponents of baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins try to say that baptism is a work. And those who practice baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins or for the remission of sins are trying to work our way into heaven. Scripture never, ever, ever, ever calls baptism a work. If Scripture doesn't call baptism a work, no one else really and truly can call baptism a work either. Furthermore, Scripture associates baptism with faith. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 read, For you, all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ put on Christ. For uh, I'll read it again. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we express our faith in God and become his sons through faith in Christ. And faith in Christ includes baptism. Putting on Christ by showing our faith in God is calling on the name of the Lord. We can only put on Christ through baptism. Once again, I'll say that Ephesians 4, 5 tells us, this, tells us there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Therefore, there isn't a baptism that has us put on Christ and another one that doesn't. Baptism is for putting on Christ. Please turn with me to uh, Colossians 2.12. That's Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12 reads, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2.12 clearly ties baptism to faith. Calling on the name of the Lord includes putting our faith in the Lord and being baptized. Baptism is for salvation or remission of sins. Baptism is calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is not a work. Scripture never says it's a work. Saying it's a work is a human teaching that somebody made up some, some time along the way. Scripture actually links baptism to faith. Those of you out there that teach and practice the sinner's prayer are contradicting Scripture. There are no examples of the sinner's prayer in Scripture and no commands to do it. Calling on the name of the Lord isn't about a sinner's prayer, but it's about baptism. Scripture directly links baptism to calling on the name of the Lord. The sinner's prayer, as I said a moment ago, is a man-made doctrine. Jesus has a warning for uh, teachers of man-made doctrines in Matthew 15.9. Matthew 15.9 reads, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I'll read it one more time. Matthew 15.9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
when we teach the commandments of men, or some translations say the precepts of men, when we teach doctrine that is man-made, teachings that are man-made, whether we make them up ourselves or we just copy somebody else who did, we are in danger, or if not in fact, worshiping God in vain. Thank you for tuning in and listening. God bless.